it is my joy and privilege to be with you all for the next three weeks. And as we are concluding and nearing the end of my full time here at Redeemer, let me first how much, say how much I am in debt to all of you uh, for the love that you have shown to myself and Paige and, and all that you have done for us over these last two years. Um, it means more than you can ever know. We will truly miss all of you, but we're not saying goodbye yet, so we won't. All right, so it is fitting then that today we finish our time in the book of James here together. And these last two verses that we will read, we will get to see James' heart and passion for the church in, over his entire letter. And good conclusions to books, to letters, to movies are like that, aren't they? It doesn't matter how good the beginning and middle are. If the ending is bad, then it taints and ruins the entire experience. But if it's good, right, it encapsulates everything about the story and makes it fill with wonder in you about what the story was all about. James has a unique ending. It's unlike Paul's letters, which are often filled with personal notes towards the people he loves. It's unlike the letters of Peter, who would often address his audience with reminders of Christ's glory and to greet one another. Rather, James ends with something unlike we see anything in the scriptures. And it'll take some time for us to unwrap these two verses. So let's turn our Bibles to James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. And as you're turning there, let's all stand as we read God's word for us here today. James chapter 5, verses 19 to 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray together before we begin. Father, the source of all wisdom and strength, guide us as your church now in a way, your path for us, lead us to yourself. Let us not lose heart, but rather press forward in the faith to pursue and seek after our fellow brothers and sisters who might be wandering. Let us remind ourselves of Christ who pursued us, Guide us now in the teaching of your word. In your son's name we pray all these things. Amen. You may be seated. Hmm. All that is gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. From the ashes a fire shall be woken. A light from the shadows shall spring. Renewed shall be blade that was broken, the crownless again shall be king. J.R.R. Tolkien wrote these words in his most famous epic, The Lord of the Rings, and it was a poem that was to highlight the arrival of the future King Aragorn, showing a, a poem that was to describe that the appearances of what we see in front of us often betray what is actually happening in the plan of the story that we're all in. This poem is a reflection of the reality that we often don't know what is happening beyond the surface. Not all who wander are lost. And that God is writing his story in a way that tells us to live more courageously, more boldly than the circumstances that surround us. 
James ends his epistle to the scattered churches around the diaspora with a similar exhortation that gives real hope to a church going through the reality of trials and sufferings. He gives them the promise that there is an eternity waiting for them, that not all who are wandering are indeed lost forever. That from what appears to be the ashes of a faith in turmoil is actually the opportunity for the greatest blessing to come alive and fan into flames the life for a believer. And so we're going to discuss three things here today that will help us to understand why James is ending his letter this way. And in doing so, see the overarching picture of what, or should I say who, James is talking about. So first... The point that we're going to make today is the existence of wandering. The second is the compassion for the wandering. And the third is the hope for the wandering. The existence of wandering, the compassion for the wandering, and the hope for the wandering. So let's get into our first point right now, the existence of wandering. James, throughout the epistle, has given warnings to the church that threaten it from moment to moment, but he saves this danger perhaps the greatest danger for last, because James knows that the church, like Israel before it, like the people of God before it, like the disciples of Jesus, are prone to wander from the truth. And when I say wander from the truth, this word here for truth in the original language has much more force than our English word for truth. The word here is more closely translated to the understanding of sort of the way or the pathway or the road that is set before them. So if anyone wanders from the truth or the pathway that they are going on is probably more in line here in terms of the translation. And it would be consistent with the prevailing idea of their times. You see, when you followed a rabbi in biblical times and you became their disciple, you were following in the pathway of that person. Not just intellectually in what they said or sort of a hearty emotional response to their rhetoric, but you actually gathered yourself up to walk in their footsteps. In the Mishnah, uh, which is a collection of Jewish sayings, uh, following the way or the, the truth or the pathway of your rabbi meant that you powdered yourself in the dust of their feet. Uh, now, we erroneously in our sort of Christian days often thought that this meant that you covered yourself as you were walking in their footsteps. But actually, the, the original Mishnah talks about laying at the rabbi's feet and covering yourself in their dust as you do so. So this is a sign of worship. This is a sign that you are laying down before them. When you're following their pathway, you are worshiping the God or the, the idea of what they're talking about. So wandering isn't just the idea that you had a bad thought or that you maybe got lost on your Waze app. It's actually you're moving with intent. You don't simply have an intellectual wandering of the faith or an emotional wandering of the faith. You are going and directing your life in a way that is responding in worship towards that pathway. The Jewish society would have instantly regarded this as leading towards apostasy, a denial of the faith itself. And so James is deeply concerned for the church that he needs to warn them about their wandering as a real and present danger and reality in their faith. It exists. And we should not be blind to its effects or its nature. James is presenting a reality that we need to hear. We need to be conscious of that song, Come Thou Found, that last stanza where it says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. 
prone to leave the God I love. So let us embrace the pathway, the truth, not just as what we know, but let us also embrace the pathway that we are walking together as the church, as followers of Christ. And so when we are saying wandering from the truth, I am not saying that just because you can intellectually assent to the knowledge of the Lord, that means you're walking with Him. In fact, that's one of the greatest dangers of the church and of God's people in every generation. We can be really good at asserting the Christian truth, but in our lives reflect the inconsistency of walking along a different pathway. Notice James' assumptions in these two verses here. He does not presume that church attendance means that they are not wandering. He does not even presume because they've read his epistle. They're reading his words that they are free from it. He does not even presume that wandering is an innocent wandering. It's a purposeful movement. So, now the question arises that we have to ask ourselves. Why does wandering happen? After all, we the church have experienced, have tasted, and seen the Lord's goodness working in our lives. We, we know the truth that God's present in his word and is what we can cling on to. We see it. We've experienced it. We confess it. So why on earth do we wander? You know, while I was in seminary, um, a professor at the time asked us why the people of Israel would continually get into this cycle and pattern of sin over and over again. And, you know, when you hear a question from a professor of a seminary, you, you think he's tricking you, right? So we all try to come up with these very, like, erudite, technical answers based on the doctrine of sin and the horrors and all that stuff. And he at one point just stopped the class, and he said something I'll never forget. He's like, y'all, Israel didn't sin because it was terrible. Israel sinned because they thought it was fun. When we make the conscious choice to sin as his people, we wander away from him because we believe there is joy in that detour of the road that he's calling us to follow. But like all tourist traps, what we think is so fun winds up just being a colossal waste of time from what God is calling us to. The best pathway, the best road, the best life that we can have is following in his ways, in his truth for us. This is why Jesus never wanted, by the way, disciples who could simply just assent to what he was saying. They actually needed to leave the life that they currently had. There was no middle ground with this. To, to be a disciple of Christ meant that our pathway, the life that we set for ourselves, the life that we think we deserve, the lifestyle that we think we're called to live, these are obstacles to the life that God is actually leading us on. John Owen the great Reformed theologian, warns that the greatest danger of apostasy for the Christian life is one that is satisfied with where they now stand in his relationship with the Lord. Not seeing that there is a greater path and a calling that God is calling us to move forward towards. Owen, in his famous work on apostasy, challenges us with a line of questioning that should make us more vigilantly aware of the wandering that is ever so present before us. This is his line of questioning from his book, and it's, it's brilliant, and I want you to listen to this. He says this. Is it nothing unto us that so many nations in the world where the profession of the gospel did flourish for some ages are now utterly overrun with paganism and atheism? 
Do we suppose these things are fallen out of chance? And is not the glory of God particularly concerned? Is it nothing unto us that innumerable souls who yet continue to make an outward profession of the name of Christ have so degenerated from the mystery, holiness, and worship of the gospel and have given themselves up to the most woeful bondage and slavery that ever any of the children of men were cast under from the foundation of the world? And he ends with this. Is it nothing to us that the greatest number of those who are called Christians and enjoy prosperity in the world do live in open idolatry to the unspeakable scandal of Christian religion and imminent danger unto themselves? John Owen is not here trying to give a large guilt trip to the people of God, but he's merely presenting a reality that happens. So is James. The church needs to arise and see where they are wandering. The church may sleepwalk for a while, but we need to wake up and realize that our wandering is only leading us down a pathway of destruction. So James establishes the existence of wandering for us so that we are not too proud to miss it. But it's not enough to simply state the existence of wandering, is it? No. James the pastor comes out now. And it reminds us of our second point here today, the compassion for the wandering. This is our second point, the compassion for the wandering. You see, the existence of wandering in the life of the church should lead the church to remind themselves of the compassion of Jesus. While James naturally assumes that there will be those in the church that will wander away from the truth, the greater instinct there for the church is that we will go and bring them back. That the posture of the church, the heart of its people, the ethos of the hands and feet of those who walk and follow Christ is that they are the people that seek and save those who are wandering in, in love and in faith and reach out to them. Again, to reiterate, James' understanding of bringing someone back from wandering from the truth is not merely an intellectual exercise to convince someone of the truth. There was a, a pastor who once famously said, bad evangelism says this, I'm right, you're wrong, and I would love to tell you about it. This is often the problem that plagues so many poor evangelism efforts. If we are able to get someone to sort of agree to our set of truth claims, then, then we've done it. But it's more than an exercise in debate. No one I've ever known in my time in ministry has ever been debated into the faith. To bring someone back from wandering means being incarnational with that person, to be physically present with them, to care for their soul, and to help them see that the pathway that they're on is leading down, them down a place that will not fill them with what they're really looking for. Rather, it's a cause of their greater sorrow because their wandering is not just a relief of their pain, it's the cause of their pain. So wandering from the truth isn't just about getting them to agree mentally with us. Now, it's certainly not less than that, but it's so much more. Remember the story of the Samaritan woman with Jesus? If you're not familiar, Jesus meets up with a Samaritan woman who at the moment is one of the greatest enemies of the Jews. These were the religious terrorists who defiled the Jewish temple. These 
were people that were anathema. And for Jesus to even sit down with this woman and ask him for a, a drink would be like asking Russian soldiers to eat meals with Ukrainian soldiers in lunchtime in between battles. But Jesus knows this woman is searching. Jesus knows that this woman is wandering. But she is not lost. She needs the living water of Christ. And so Christ stays with her incarnational with her and shows her the truth of not just who he is, but the person. He gives her what she really needs while bringing her to an understanding that all that she's really wanting in life is him. Jesus gives this woman not just a set of doctrinal principles, as important as those are, but he gives her the person of Christ. And that's what we need to do with one another. It's about helping each other when we're stumbling. When we've had just one of those weeks and it's just been too much. When we think the answer is an escape from God into mindless entertainment, destructive habits, drowning ourselves in vices or excesses, all in the name of vanity. We, we need to remind each other that what we're really searching for in our weakness and our weariness is the comfort of Christ who is near to us and Christ who is with us. That if we believe, as the Apostle Paul did, that Christ in me is to live, then we need to be there for each other, sharing and showing Christ to one another in ways that is powerful, dynamic, and more than just getting people to agree with us, we need to be there with each other and reach out to each other because when we do so, we see the image of Christ clearly with one another. One of my wife's favorite preachers is a former PCA pastor by the name of James Forsyth. Uh, and she told me this story about his ministry. At, at one period of his ministry and his preaching, uh, James Forsyth had an engraving on his pulpit that was placed there by his wife. It was a verse from John 12, 21. And the, in that verse, it talks about the Greeks going up to the disciple Philip, and they ask Philip, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. It was a reminder to James Forsyth that every time he preached from the pulpit, he was to show his congregation Christ. That no matter what was being demanded from him, no matter what he thought of the actual problems, no matter the supposed impossibility of the task, his task was to give them Jesus. So when we are with people, and this is not just for pastors, help them to see Jesus. Give them Jesus. When we are those who are lost, go to our brothers and sisters that are struggling. Seek them out. And when we do so, we are echoing the calling of our Savior who loved the world and gave himself up for us, who seeked and saved the lost, who left the 99 to reach out to the one. And I know as I say this, this is not a hypothetical situation for all of us here today, isn't it? We all carry the weight and burden and the sacrifice that this entails of, of that one person that we've tried to reach out to bring them back into the faith. You know, we've all seen those around us who claim to love the Lord, and we would have never have dreamed in a million years that they would have ever have considered to leave the faith. I mean, after all, they, they were leaders. They were teachers. They were our mentors, our spiritual brothers and sisters, our fathers and our mothers. And their departure left us devastated and hurting. And we, we are grieved every moment by that, even today. And so James, when he's asking for compassion for the lost, he, he, he's not 
saying it's easy. He understands that we can lose heart and lose the will to believe that God could ever bring these people back home. But our compassion for those who are wandering will remind us of the hope that we have for the wandering. And this is our last point here today. And James covers us with this great hope in these two verses, and, and, and we don't want you to miss it. The hope for the wandering, once they've encountered Christ, once they have seen His mercy and grace, once we've set them from the pathway that they're on to the pathway of Christ, is that those who are on a pathway to death will be saved and be given eternal life. Look at verse 20 again. Whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That being the saving of the soul and the covering of the sins of the person. Right? So when James is talking about, in verse 20, he's not talking about the person who brought them back into the faith will have their sins covered. He's talking about the person who was lost. Their sins will be covered. Life will be given back to their name. So the hope for the wandering in James' in James's eyes, and this is the point of his letter, is not the self-satisfaction of the one who rescues them. Now, to be sure, there is an immense joy that we receive on being on the front row of how God is working. You get to be an instrument used by God for the work of salvation in a person. You get, to holy, you get to see the Holy Spirit work in a way that will open up doors of the heart that you never even thought would be possible. But the most rewarding part about the work of bringing our fellow brothers and sisters back into the fold is that you get to see that God's glory is worth the struggle. Redeemer, evangelism is hard. Bringing back a wayward friend is difficult, especially those who have committed themselves to faith and, and know all the Christian answers and still choose to walk away from him. You will have to sacrifice time that you don't have. Your emotions will be hurt with the weight of rejection from this person. You will spend time listening and reading arguments and objections that simply won't make sense to you. And you will feel many a time that you could be doing so much more for the kingdom of God than sitting in this labor and this struggle. But James is saying here, don't give up. It's worth it. God's glory is worth it. Eternity on the line is worth it. Sins forgiven is worth it. And remember what this says about the gospel we profess. We don't give up the pursuit for the heart of the person because Christ has come for the wayward such as us. Jesus comes as the ransom for many. Jesus comes that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus tasted death so that many sons and daughters could come into glory. Jesus became the man of sorrows, oppressed and afflicted, put him to grief. Jesus went to the cross on Calvary, and through taking on our sins and punishment and being forsaken by God the Father, he does all of this so that the pathway we were once on towards sure death, towards sure separation from God, forever could radically direct us to the new path that opens up the way for back to the love of the Father. Jesus died and resurrected so that we could be called His. And Jesus could be called worthy. So church, fight the good fight for those whom Christ loved because it is worth it. And that is why I believe James ends his epistle like this. There can be no higher note, 
knowing about that salvation is won for the wayward believer and that sins are forgiven for him. And that is why I believe, by the way, that James is not, as some have in error believed, that, that James is a letter that is just sort of this Aesop's fable book of parables that are all jumbled together without a real unity. This has often been a problem in, uh, in our tradition. The reformer, even Martin Luther, famously thought that James was an epistle of straw early on in his ministry. He didn't think that the book of James was biblical canon because on the surface level reading of it, it appears as though that there is nothing that connects this book to the work of Christ and who Jesus is. And when we do read it on a surface level, it, it would almost be hard to disagree with Martin Luther here. The, the name of Jesus, after all, is only mentioned twice in the entire book of James. And it's almost done in passing. There is little to no discussion of redemptive history. There are no prophecies to unearth. And so we have to ask ourselves as we conclude our time here, why in the world is this book in our Bibles? Is James merely a collection of moral statements given to the church to tell them how to live wisely? And while the debate of, over James has raged on for centuries, I love seeing the book of James and the beauty of it as a collective whole by seeing it as the New Testament equivalent to the book of Esther. Now, what in the world do I mean by that? Well, think about it. How many times is God mentioned in the book of Esther? The answer might surprise you. God is mentioned precisely zero times in the book of Esther. And yet, when you read through Esther, it is undeniable that God is working through every verse every plot point, every part of the story to bring about the redemption of his people through the narrative. Likewise, James, who is the brother of Jesus, is crafting this epistle in such a way that it becomes clear that his letter is more than what it seems on the surface. Like our opening Lord of the Rings poem, a light from the shadows shall spring. Christ reveals himself through the shadows of this entire letter. Turn to the beginning of the book of James. Very quickly, we'll go through this. Christ is the one who considered it joy to endure the sufferings of the cross set before him in chapter 1. Christ is the one who gives wisdom because he is wisdom. Christ is the one who remains steadfast under trial. Christ is both the speaker and the doer of the word because he is the word who was with God at the beginning. Christ is the one who loves all without partiality in chapter 2. Christ is the one where faith and works always comes together. Christ tamed his tongue and spoke words of life to everyone who hears it in chapter 3. Christ is the fulfillment of weakness, meekness, and wisdom. Christ is the one who humbled himself and resisted the devil in chapter 4 and became sin who knew no sin so that we could be called the friends of God. Christ is the one who followed the will of the Father. And in chapter 5, Christ is the righteous son who was murdered. By his oppressors, Christ was patient in his suffering, and as he endured the road to Calvary, Christ always lets his yes be yes and his no, no. Christ is the one who prays for all of his people. And finally, most importantly, at the end of his letter, Christ comes for us, his wayward people, to bring us back so we could have eternity with him, delighting in his love and grace, being rescued from our sins together. As we end our time here, yes, James is a book, yes, about wisdom. It is the New Testament version of Proverbs as well. But don't miss the larger point. 
James want the church to see that this wisdom is only livable for us because Christ has lived it for us first. And that is why Christ is scarcely mentioned here in the book intentionally because he's actually there all along. And when the return of our king, Jesus, comes, we will see wisdom personified in such a way that we will finally understand the fullness of all that is written in this letter about how we are called to live as the body of Christ. And when we do, we will see the majesty and glory of all of our labors realized. Because the wait is over. The king has come back and we can finally rest. Until that day, church, let's meditate on this book together. We follow the pathway of Jesus. We call the wayward to him. And we remember the glory of our Christ together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son. That while we were on the wayward path, wandering from the truth, Lord, you came and rescued us. Lord, we pray that we would have the compassion of Christ to do the same. For our neighbors, for our friends, for our family. Lord, knowing that that road is difficult and challenging, but Lord, we know that it is worth it because you have walked that pathway for us. Lord, we thank you for your word as it enlightens us and teaches us. We praise you for all that you are. In Christ's name, amen.